and welcome to episode three of our A to Z of Tech podcast. Today, of course, it's C and we'll be talking about cybersecurity. Louise's favourite topic. Absolutely. Felicity and I are joined in the studio today by Dan from the National Cybersecurity Centre. Thank you for joining us today. I wondered, first of all, perhaps if we could just ask, why should people care about cybersecurity at the moment? Well, it's an interesting question. I think in the past, it would have been uh, a more difficult one to answer. But these days, because basically the internet is is literally everywhere, so um, you get in your car, you drive down the street, your car is likely to be operating off the internet. You stop in front of traffic lights, so traffic lights are likely to be operating off the internet. You're liable to be living in cities in the future that are heavily connected to the internet. Sometimes your kettle is connected to the internet. So the internet literally is everywhere. You depend on it, and actually you depend on it not just for your own security in terms of being able to um, ensure that it's secure, but you depend on everybody else's internet being secure and defending their networks in order for you to be secure as well. It would be really interesting, I think, for our listeners to get a little bit of an insight into what the NCSC is doing at the minute and what your priorities are. Sure, absolutely. Um, so the National Cybersecurity Centre is really the national technical authority for cyber in the UK. It was created in order to have a single place in government where people could go for cybersecurity advice and cybersecurity um, expertise, knowledge and information. And uh, we do a number of really important things, one of which is to understand the cyber threat and understand cyber generally speaking, and to be able to convey that uh, to the public and private sector um, and public sector, obviously. But we also provide uh, quite a bit of advice, uh, which is designed to help people understand how to protect their networks and how to uh, respond to cyber threats and, uh, and generally mitigate them. We also provide an assessment function, which is um, aimed at government, but it's increasingly being aimed at the private sector as well, which will provide an understanding of what, how we see the cyber threat in overall terms. And we do uh, quite a lot of uh, work with industry to help them secure their networks and, and with government to help them secure their networks in a way that will um, generally sort of make the, uh, the UK the safest place to do business and live. And that's the whole concept behind the NCSC is that to make the UK the, uh, the, the safest place to work and do business online. If we think about those consumers sitting at home, you know, what are the most important things that could be hitting them at the moment? What, what should we be looking out for? It's a difficult question because the way that the internet works, it could be pretty much anything that you could be exposed to. But I think the, the trends that we're seeing at the moment, obviously there's a lot of cybercrime uh, that's out there at the moment that's, that's hitting people. And that might be anyone trying to um, steal things from your bank account, right through to uh, people actually trying to steal your personal information and then sell that on cybercrime networks. Or, or you might be actually hit by um, someone who's exploiting a vulnerability in an application that you use. You're not necessarily the target of the information, but they will steal what you have and then use sort of, uh, I guess, sort of bulk data analysis to then identify how they can use that and then they will onward sell it if they can possibly monetize it. We do see a lot of ransomware about, which is like a particularly sort of virulent threat currently. And um, hackers are getting better at understanding uh, where to actually deploy that in order to have the best effect. So a lot of sort of small businesses, perhaps who really like see their client list as important or who um, have important records or data that they need access to all the time, where actually 
locking that up uh, with a bit of ransomware would cause that business potential um, economic harm and maybe in, in fact cause the business to go under over a period of like 24 to 72 hours if they don't have access to it. People are more, um, I guess, inclined to try and pay the ransom in those circumstances and make that sort of cost calculation between paying the ransom and potentially loss of business as a result of that. And that could be a person sitting at home as well though. We have cases where uh, some particularly exploitative hackers out there might, for instance, uh, deploy a kind of malware that is designed to surveil uh, what a person is actually doing on the computer using, uh, they might activate the camera to do that and uh, might record things or might steal information that they can then use to blackmail the person into paying a ransom as well. So we, we see all, all those sorts of things happen on a fairly regular basis. We work very closely with the uh, National Crime Agency uh, who are the lead on cybercrime in all of those incidents. We do our best, I guess, to provide the right advice to enable people to prevent uh, themselves from being exposed to those kinds of threats. I read that the NCSC removed 100,000 phishing sites and blocked 11,000 malicious domains last year. But will hackers kind of always find a new way to do things? Will they always find a way around these kind of things? Yes. Hackers overall are trying to get access to something. So it doesn't really matter what it is. And effectively, whatever they want access to is going to shape the kind of attack that they use. Um, at the moment, there are a lot of uh, software and hardware applications out there that, that, are, that are particularly vulnerable anyway. So it's not really too hard for them to use quite commonly available um, tools and methods in order to exploit those. And uh, the more that those vulnerabilities exist, the easier it is for them. Um, obviously, the more secure those applications and that hardware gets and the more savvy people are to the uh, sorts of um, tactics and procedures that they might use to actually get those, then it's, I guess, a, a bit of a sort of race against the hackers in order to protect yourself, um, as well as a race for the uh, software companies and the hardware companies out there to ensure that their uh, devices are secure enough that they provide um, security for the consumer. Now, hackers are also getting very savvy in terms of how they target people. Ransomware is one example where they can target anyone with it anywhere at any time and get the same result. But you might have examples where, for example, um, they uh, target a finance uh, department within an organisation with what looks like a spreadsheet. And of course, somebody sitting within an accounting um, job within one of those finance departments it might be a phishing email, it might look like a phishing email, but because they're doing that day in, day out, they're easy to sort of like uh, exploit in that respect. You have uh, other examples where, for example, you might they might go after uh, people who have uh, administrator roles within IT parts of the organisation. By exploiting them, they can ac get access to very sensitive parts of the network and get uh, sensitive privileges, and they'll send them phishing emails with, for example, um, job advertisements for um, somebody who's an IT professional with very lucrative offerings, and that will uh, uh, lure them into potentially clicking on it. With government departments, it might be um, a current event. So um, send something to the Foreign Office, for instance, that might be particularly Brexit-themed and use a, um, an email address that looks like it comes from a very legitimate um, partner or customer. Uh, and it's easy enough for anyone to click on it because it's very, very difficult these days the way that hackers construct these things to identify that it's a phishing email in the first place without some very detailed examination. One of your colleagues was telling me about uh, an HMRC case to do with that. Can you tell us a bit more about that one? 
think the problem is that um, HMRC is a very effective uh, lure document uh, for phishing emails, mainly because anybody in the UK who is working in the UK is a customer of HMRC. Mm. And particularly this time of year. Correct, especially when it comes to tax time. Um, everybody is concerned when they get something that looks like it's legitimately from HMRC, um, they're likely to click on it and that malicious attachment will then infect them and then so on and so forth. And it depends um, which particular hacker you get as to what the exploitation is going to be as a result of that. Um, usually in those cases, it's, it's predominantly cybercrime that we see, but obviously it could be of equal use to a, a state-sponsored hacker or anybody else really who wanted that kind of access. So actually cybersecurity then is really a combination of things. It's not just focusing on the technical security aspect, but it's also about user awareness. Are there any tips or tools that our listeners could, um, could delve into that would maybe give them a little bit more guidance on how to be a bit more aware around this? I think the first thing that you need to do is use basically a complex uh, password, if possible, and separate passwords for all your accounts. I know that's a really basic thing to say, I think there are a lot of us out there who would probably repeat passwords because we've got so many accounts between Facebook, Instagram, our email accounts, our, our work accounts that we use that actually we just repeat the same password over and over again. If that's too hard, there are a lot of browsers out there now that enable you to, that have password managers attached to them that will create a very strong password for you that you don't need to worry about. You can save that, save that off so that next time that you're asked if you want to authenticate, you just use that same one again. Two-factor authentication for all your accounts is the other thing. Uh, just to explain that a little bit, so you've got your username and your password, everybody's got that, and that's the sort of thing that a, that a hacker will exploit. The second factor really is to do with um, either something that you know or something that you own or have or something that is you. So um, something that you know, for instance, might be a, a secret question that you don't know. So you would put your password in and your username and then it would come up with a secret question to authenticate. So if the hacker doesn't have that answer, then they're not going to be able to respond. Um, something that you uh, own might be, for example, a token like you get for your internet banking sometimes where you basically, um, it will ask you for a number, you click the token and the number comes up and you put that in or some banks use SMS, for example, for that and they will send you a text message and you put that number in. And something that you are is uh, biometric sort of authentication where um, not, not exactly looking into a, a special sort of um, optical unit to actually verify you from your iris, but it might be something like um, if on your iPhone just using your thumbprint to authenticate who you are, and that's the second factor authentication. That at least uh, will make sure that no matter what happens, the hacker at least has to have one of those other things uh, to authenticate in order to get access to your account, and that's really important. Um, using a password like Fluffy or whoever your favourite pet's name is, is really, really dangerous. They could get access to anything from your Facebook messages to a whole range of different stuff if you've used that uh, password across multiple sort of different, different sites. And having a password that is a complicated combination, is that to make it harder for an attacker to guess what it would be? That's right. There's a lot of automated solutions out there on the internet that these days it will enable people to brute force, so they'll allow people to um, guess passwords effectively. Most hackers worth their salt will have a number of these different uh, tools available to them and will deploy them, and that goes from state-sponsored actors right through to cyber criminals. Unfortunately, they have an incredible amount of um, success with them. Um, the other thing I perhaps didn't mention in this regard as well is to, um, for, the, for the listeners out there to make sure that their apps and their uh, operating system are kept up to date. Um, 
hackers effectively, as soon as there is something exploitable, will deploy it. If you haven't kept up with your um, software updates or your app updates, they are literally weaknesses waiting there to be exploited by hackers. So one of the other best things that you can do to protect yourself is actually um, to keep those up as up to date as possible so that they're uh, compliant with what the actual uh, producer of the software or hardware is uh, requiring in order for you to stay safe. You mentioned there um, state-sponsored hackers versus cyber criminals. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about the different types of people out there who could be looking to get into your information online. Absolutely. So hackers come into all sorts of different uh, forms and varieties. You have um, state-sponsored ones, you've got cyber criminals, you've got hacktivists, you might have terrorists out there, of course, who are doing that kind of uh, stuff. So. State-sponsored hackers, it's worth sort of uh, saying that it's not all about espionage. So some of it might be about uh, getting intelligence on other people some of it, or other organisations. Some of it might be about um, intellectual property theft, so actually stealing um, information on technologies or products within organisations that can then be used to reproduce that technology um, somewhere else. Um, it might be for a disruptive purpose, so if you want to cause a, a non violent, non-kinetic effect against another nation. You might do something that would be uh, termed a, um, an offensive cyber attack, where you actually hack some system that's critical and either disable it uh, temporarily, maybe that's using ransomware, maybe it's like using something more destructive that actually wipes uh, the uh, data or records that control whatever the function is. So say, let's say that the um, internet controls the traffic lights in a particular city. Uh, you might um, hack into the, the, the central sort of system that controls that and then wipe that data or, or lock it up and disable it, thereby causing chaos in a city might be an example of how that might be used. Um, and there's also economic theft, so the sort of thing that cyber criminals do or even state-sponsored hackers. Um, and then you've got the other kind of uh, theft, which is more the sort of like, I guess, the general sort of economic uh, type theft where it's more information that would be valuable to actually exploit for economic purposes for another nation. So there's a, that's the nation state actors. I've already spoken about the cyber criminals and how they might go after personal information or, or personal uh, details or in fact banking information that they can exploit. Although some of the, the senior sort of like organised crime groups are very specialised and will go after whole chains of restaurants or whole chains of petrol stations or something like that will exploit a weakness and then will uh, effectively steal large amounts of money through those systems, sometimes through the salary payment system, and they will compromise every uh, element of the network that they need to actually get that large payment authorization out. Hacktivists, so you, you would know that Anonymous has sort of been making um, threats recently against banks and government departments, etc. There are more sort of, um, I guess, hacktivist collectives who have some hacking skills. Um, some of them might, might be what we call script kiddies, where they actually just go on the internet, get readily available tools, and then use them to actually do some hacking without any special expertise. Some of them might be very experienced hackers. They will basically hack for a cause, and often those guys are more about defacement than they are uh, destruction or disruption of networks, something more serious than that. Although in the future, we might see uh, something more in that vein. And terrorists, of course, at the moment, uh, terrorism, we mainly see terrorists uh, defacing websites and having that kind of propagandist effect than we do see them actually do any kind of disruptive or destructive attacks. The problem is going to the future, I think, with the cybercrime marketplace having so many dangerous tools available for purchase to the highest bidder. With the right access, I guess terrorists 
could dip into that marketplace and then do things that we haven't seen them do previously, which would be extremely disruptive or destructive. And then you've got, I guess, the sort of um, individual hackers out there who might be insiders within an organization who might know how to exploit a network because they've already got some, some kind of access and they're often the hardest ones to pick up. All of them are trying to get access in some way. All of them are trying to manipulate and exploit a network in a particular way that is going to gain them some kind of advantage depending upon what their actual purpose is. Are there any particular trends you might be anticipating seeing over the next 12 months when it comes to cybersecurity or anything that our listeners should be thinking about? In terms of the people out there in the street, ransomware is going to be uh, is, is proving itself to be an extremely prolific and effective means of garnering economic benefit for cyber criminals and others. I think we are going to see more of that. So in terms of protection, the sort of things that I've just mentioned are, are really important. On the ransomware um, piece, we do say that uh, it's better not to pay the ransom if you can. There's some advice again on the NCSC website for individuals and families that gives you um, some pretty direct information on that. But Again, it's up to the individual, I guess, what they what they feel they, they can and they can't do um, and how they react. But there's every chance that if you pay it the first time, we are dealing with criminals, they're likely to try and exploit you again. And if you're still vulnerable, that's what you're going to be exposed to. Thank you very much, Dan, for coming in today and sharing some of your insights with us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. And now let's hear a little bit from our colleague Alex about executive profiling. So Alex, tell us a little bit about the interesting work that you do here with CEOs and their personal cybersecurity. Sure. So we do a lot of work for businesses that are concerned about the risk that their CEO and their boards pose to the company, but also to themselves. So we do a lot of work where we go in and provide questionnaires where we sit down one-on-one -on -one with a, a board member and talk through not just basic things like what are your email, what are your social media handles, those types of things, but we ask specific questions around their behavior online. Mm -hmm. So do they use the same password across multiple different uh, platforms? Are they using the same email to do online shopping as they are to do their personal email? Is it the same as their work email? Are they putting information out that they possibly shouldn't be about, like what languages do they speak, do they do online gambling or play games online, all of that sort of information that you don't necessarily think of first and foremost when you're talking about cybersecurity. We get all of that information, go away and do some open source research to look at what can we actually find about their digital footprint online and then take that back to them and sit down and explain what information we've been able to find out about them and then how that poses a risk to both them, their family and the business. Sounds super interesting. Are they ever surprised about what you find? Yeah, they are actually. So a lot of them have obviously been through the standard social media training that you get. So I'm sure you've all done it yourselves. You sit down and you get told, you know, lock down your Facebook, don't put things on Twitter that you wouldn't want repeated and put in a magazine and all of those sorts of things. But they don't think about the fact that all of those accounts can link to their family and friends. And it's information a lot of the time that we find specifically people's children putting on their social media that uh, explains an awful lot about their life that they didn't think you could find out. <laughs> so you get some uh, interesting conversations that you have to have with very senior people around that. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And that blurring between somebody's um, professional online persona and their personal one, I think is something that's only just becoming more and more evident as well at the minute. 
Yeah, it definitely is. And a lot of people don't realise the information they put online also has a physical real world consequence. So it's not only, well, someone can use the information I've put out there to try and fish me or target me and try and get to a, a company or if they're a high net worth individual themselves that way. But it's things like if they've put all over Facebook, they're going on holiday and the whole family is going, there's an empty house there. These people are quite high profile. They're often earning an awful lot of money it leaves a, a wide open opportunity for someone to come and burgle the property. Or you've had cases where people will talk to journalists and sit down, have a, a perfectly nice conversation, but reveal an awful lot of information about how they get to work every morning, what time they leave their house, uh, what way they walk there, the sort of information around their partners and their family, where they have dinner every week once a night, you know, Tuesday night they go to this specific restaurant and that sort of information leaves them very open for targeting of, you know, they might drop a USB outside the house when they know someone's about to leave and, oh, mm. they've picked that up and put it in a computer and, and they're infected. Or if there's any controversy around the business, they can be targeted for protests and attacks that way as well. So we've probably all heard from loads of different sources all the types of things we should be doing to keep ourselves safe online. But do you think we're actually doing those things? No, is the simple answer. <laughs> People are quite good about their own security, but they're not that great around their family and their really close friends' security. So it's advising people that they need to be aware of what they're posting about others. So mm. they can post whatever they want about their own lives, but when it comes to what other people are doing, they need to be a bit more careful. And it's educating your friends and family around that because they don't necessarily get the same exposure as you as an individual do. And on top of that, it's separating out things like having work accounts and personal accounts. So you have a work account where you put up all of your you know, business material and that sort of information, and then have a separate personal account which is locked down, very private, only your friends and family can access alongside you so that you're then only sharing information with people that you trust. And actually that family angle is a really interesting one. When we think about um, maybe younger members of the family or children, um, being online, we often think about it from their own personal security perspective, but also interesting to see that flipped and think that actually they can themselves be putting out information which can compromise other family members. Yeah, absolutely. So we see it more and more commonly now with young generations making all of their lives so accessible. Uh, and not that I'm any different, I have every social media account under the sun, <laughs> but it's thinking about who you're wanting that information to be shared with and it's trying to explain to them in a way that actually means something as to why they shouldn't be putting every single thing they do in every single place they do uh, they go online for people to see and read about. And what are some of the main recommendations that you tend to give clients when it comes to keeping safe online? So we have a wide variety which for each of these engagements we obviously personalise very heavily. Um, so on top of your standard security hygiene practices that you should have in things like using different passwords and very complex passwords for all of your different accounts. Uh, we recommend install a password manager so you, you can do that and keep them and keep them in a secure location. Uh, you can have separate email accounts for things like online shopping or if you want to do online gaming and things like that, have all of that on kind of like a email account where you're not getting your personal information as well. So it's kind of, if you get spam to it and things like that and people are trying to target that one, it doesn't really matter. Separate from your banking, I guess, is probably quite Exactly, important. yes. Keep your banking separate mm. from all of those sorts of things as well. Um, and that's also a very key one with secure passwords, obviously. And then making sure that you're very vigilant around the communications that you're getting. So if anything looks remotely suspicious, 
from any organization, even if it's someone that emails you all the time, but there's just something a little bit, or it doesn't feel right, call them and talk to them about it and get a real world person on the phone from a number that you've found from somewhere that you trust Mm. to check that sort of thing first. Um, So then, yeah, on top of having those conversations, obviously, with your family and friends and and having separate work and personal accounts, they're the key things that we really try and get across to people. Thank you so much, Alex. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So in this episode, we've heard from two Australians about cybersecurity and hopefully some top tips and useful insight into how to keep yourself safe online. Our Aussie is the oracle of cybersecurity. So it would appear. <laughs> so next week we have D for Drones. We've got two great women that we interviewed for that, um, Dr Pippa Malmgren and Elaine White from PwC's Drones team. In the meantime, don't forget to rate and review on whichever podcast app you listen on. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm on at Felicity Main. And I'm at Lutag Tech. And we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>